Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 24 The End of an Era. Graham Taylor had a lot on his plate the day Tony Coton broke his thumb. It may have been the goalkeeper's hand that was in plaster, but Taylor was bracing himself for a meeting he knew would feel like an hour in the thumbscrews. At old still, John Barnes's agent arrived at Vicarage Road in his pinstriped suit and bow tie to discuss his client's future. Taylor hated dealing with third parties at the best of times. He viewed with suspicion the growing influence of a band of people he considered had attached themselves to the game, but still was a serious operator. Although he was a novice when it came to football, a former Olympic swimmer and journalist, he had an established agency representing a host of leading opera singers. Now he was making his first steps into the world of football, and he had identified Barnes as a star on the rise, young, gifted and in demand, not to mention nearing the end of his contract. Barnes was the ideal client. Still came to me and said he wanted to make a video to send round to foreign clubs, says Taylor. We were dealing with an international who had played in a World Cup. If people didn't know John Barnes, then they had no business in the game, really. Taylor had accepted it was time for Barnes to move on. He was 23, and although he still had improvements to make, he needed a bigger stage. There was no way he was going to commit himself to Watford for another three years. Even a one-year contract was out of the question. He was now too good for us, Taylor says. Whether people like it or not, it was time for him to go. He was looking to progress his career, either abroad or at one of the top clubs in this country, and it would have been wrong for us to stand in his way. We'd had six years from him, and there was no way we could ask for any more. John Barnes deserved to play for one of the big clubs. Back in 1984, as he was approaching his 21st birthday, Watford had given Barnes a three-year contract, and with it a big hike in salary. When I tell you that contract was worth £25,000 a year, it gives you some idea of how things were in those days, says Muir Stratford. That was quite a good salary as far as Watford were concerned. While he was under contract, Watford rebuffed all approaches for Barnes. In 1985, Don Howe of Arsenal showed persistent interest, although they stopped short of making a firm offer. But the rules had changed now that the player's contract was running out, and Watford found they had a tricky path to negotiate. They faced the possibility of losing one of the best players in the country for significantly less than his potential value. It wasn't that he could leave for free, as this was in the days before the Jean-Marc Bosman case changed the football transfer system forever, but Barnes would be out of contract and free to negotiate with another club, and if those two clubs could not agree a fee, the matter would be referred to the transfer tribunal panel. And Watford were concerned about getting their fingers burned again. They remembered, to their cost, how things had gone when they signed Paul Atkinson from Oldham in 1983. The Latics initially asked for £150,000. Watford offered £65,000, thinking the tribunal would split the difference. At the hearing, Oldham claimed they had been offered in excess of £200,000 by another club, which swayed the verdict and cost the Hornets a fortune. The final transfer fee was £175,000 more than Oldham had wanted from Watford in the first place. 
After that, the rules of the tribunal process had been tightened. Now the panel would only take into account hard facts such as previous transfer fees, salaries and written transfer offers before setting a price. That set of criteria caused Watford problems. In the simplistic language of the tabloid newspapers, Barnes was worth at least a couple of million. Mark Hughes had joined Barcelona from Manchester United the previous summer for £2.3 million, and Ian Rush was due to move from Liverpool to Juventus for £3.2 million. However, the tribunal panel would not take any of that into account. Barnes had joined Watford from a team that played Parks football for the price of a set of football kit. But now he was an established international and Watford were concerned that if the transfer went to a tribunal, they would lose out. The fact Barnes was out of contract persuaded many clubs to sit back and monitor the situation. When push came to shove, the player would decide where he wanted to go anyway, so why offer £2 million when a bit of patience might be rewarded handsomely? Reluctant as he was to have to deal with an agent, Taylor knew that Atoll still could help generate interest from further afield and perhaps drive the price up a bit. With half an eye on the possibility of going to a transfer tribunal, Watford offered Barnes a new contract in February 1987 in a bid to strengthen their hand. Had Barnes accepted it, he would have been the club's first £1,000-a-week player. We offered John a lot of money, which we knew he would turn down, says Taylor. It was well above our pay scale, far more than anyone else was on, and there might have been a few problems if he had accepted, but we knew he wasn't going to sign. We could have trebled or quadrupled his salary, and he still would have left. But it was important to make that offer so that we could demonstrate the value we placed on him. We were in a position where, if we weren't careful, we'd have lost John for half a million pounds or less. There was talk in the papers that Barnes wanted to go to Italy, but there was only contact from one man, Sven Goran Eriksson, who was about to join Fiorentina from Roma. Verona were also rumoured to be interested. There was a phone call from a German club, I forget who, but it was never followed up, says Taylor. If Barnes did go abroad, there was a snag. The International Transfer Tribunal would automatically set the transfer fee at ten times Barnes's salary, which would net Watford just £250,000. No wonder they hoped for a bid from an English club. As it turned out, the only club to make a firm offer was Liverpool. In January 1987, they asked if Watford were prepared to sell. Taylor told them to wait until the end of the season. It was only then that the idea of leaving Watford had seriously crossed Barnes's mind. Playing in the World Cup the previous summer had broadened his horizons and he sensed that this might be his last season at Vicarage Road. I think I felt that sooner or later Graham was going to go, he says. I had never known anything other than Watford. I thought that we would just go on and on, finishing runners-up in the league and reaching cup finals. It wasn't until a bit later that the reality of football hit home and I saw that people did move on. There had been talk of me going to Arsenal, but nothing came of that. It wasn't until January 1987 that Graham and I had a conversation. I wasn't seeking to move, but once Liverpool had made an approach, it was fairly clear I was going to go. There was a lot of talk of me going to Italy, and if that had come up at that time, I would have jumped at the chance, but there was no approach that I knew of. As far as I was concerned, I was going to do what the manager suggested. I was guided by his advice. Graham told me I was staying until the end of the season. But if he had said it was best for me to go in January, that's what would have happened. 
Not a week went by without Barnes being linked to one club or another, and the endless speculation affected him. Inevitably, his form wavered. People were saying I wanted to leave, he says. I hadn't said I wanted to go. I didn't ask for a transfer, but I knew it was time. The fans were having a bit of a go, and I had gone through a dodgy spell. Some of the supporters were not as ready to accept it was time for Barnes to advance his career. They saw Watford's pragmatism as a lack of ambition. At one home game that spring, someone unfurled a banner on the Vicarage Road end. It said, Don't let Barnes go, says Taylor. Before the kick-off, Taylor walked up onto the terrace to talk to the supporters holding the banner. I said to them, Do you know the full story? Do you know that John has been offered a new contract? Do you know the money we have offered him? Can you not see that we would love to keep John Barnes, but that it's time for us to accept he's going to go? The fellow rolled his banner down, but it annoyed me that we were having to justify ourselves, as if we could do anything to keep John Barnes from moving on. People cannot be aware of all the facts. They cannot be party to every discussion that goes on at a football club. They can only go on what is in the media, but sometimes they jump to conclusions. We'd got this boy in for nothing. He had stayed for six years. It was never a question of letting John Barnes go. Come the end of the season, Liverpool were not just the front-runners for Barnes's signature. They were the only ones in the race. Arsenal's interest had cooled, and Watford had got word that Barnes was not George Graham's type of player. Try as he might, Eddie Plumley could not engineer an auction. Word had already got round that Barnes was going to join Liverpool. I spoke to Peter Robinson, my opposite number at Liverpool, fairly regularly, and I said to Graham that if I could slip the word Tottenham into conversation, I would, says Plumley. Liverpool weren't fooled. They knew they would get the player without breaking the bank. Kenny Dalgleish, Liverpool's manager, rang Taylor and offered a choice Watford could either take a million pounds in two equal instalments, one now, one in a year's time, or accept £900,000 up front. We took the view that it was better to have the £900,000 now than wait a year for the sake of an extra £100,000, says Taylor. Somewhere between the quarter-final victory over Arsenal and the semi-final defeat, the fire went out. Graham Taylor can't pinpoint the moment exactly, but gradually he found himself realising that there was no new ground to conquer with Watford. How do you do that when you've finished runners-up, when you've played in Europe, when you've reached an FA Cup final? How do you match that expectancy when the realistic goal has to be to establish the club as a regular top-ten side? As the coins rained down on him at Highbury, Taylor was full of passion. There was plenty of fire in his belly as he argued with Steve Williams and ordered his players to get off the pitch. Less than a month later, Taylor cut a very different figure as he walked along the touchline at Villa Park, following defeat in the semi-final. So used to defying the odds and delighting the supporters, this was unfamiliar territory for him. As he said after the game, there were simply no more rabbits to pull out of the hat. He felt he had failed and let people down. Normally Taylor's default reaction was to focus on the positive, but he was struggling to see one. Graham was very upset about it. It was a very flat time for everyone. He did take the burden on his shoulders, and it was one of the very rare times where it was difficult to lift the mood. Even now I try not to bring it up too often, says Steve Harrison. He missed training for two days, which was a bit unusual, and the mood was not very good. 
but we had just lost a semi-final in pretty extraordinary circumstances, so that's not surprising. It's easy to look back now and say I could see the signs. Taylor received a lot of letters after the semi-final, the majority of which were supportive or sympathetic, but there were a few that were very critical and one he remembers now with a sense of rising indignation. I received a letter from a gentleman, someone who said he was a supporter, accusing me of nepotism, says Taylor. He put his name and address on the letter, so I suspected he wanted me to call him. I was so annoyed that I rang him up. I thought, hold on, he's accusing me of picking my chief executive's son for a cup semi-final. I was so annoyed about it, and I didn't take any pleasure in saying this, but I was extremely angry with him because he was so far wider the mark. Something else that concerned Taylor was that Watford had sent 1,500 unsold tickets for the semi-final back. Taylor feared complacency was creeping in. That hit me so hard. I thought, how can we not sell all of our allocation for a semi-final? And while Taylor had revelled in his position of unprecedented power for a manager, suddenly he felt isolated. Having influenced every area of the club, he now found he didn't know where to turn. His relationship with Elton John had been going through a bad patch. There were stories in the papers saying the chairman was looking to sell up, and although Elton denied it, the influence of John Reed, who was concerned by how much of the chairman's money the club was swallowing up, was becoming increasingly significant. Elton had missed board meetings, and the issue of how the Rouse stand was going to be paid for was weighing heavily on him. By 1987 we were trying to become self-sufficient so we didn't have to rely on Elton's money, says Taylor. Elton and John Reed were having their differences of opinion over the extent to which he was involved. I was in the process of building another team, and we had not been out of the top twelve in five years, but keeping it going was hard. I am pleased we finished runners-up and reached the cup final, of course I am, but it did make it difficult to keep improving. You had to win the league or the cup, and that was going to be very hard. We had established ourselves as a team capable of finishing mid-table in the first division, and perhaps we were guilty, all of us, of not fully recognising what we were achieving. We'd give an arm and a leg to finish twelfth in the Premier League now. We were trying to move things on and become a top-six club, but that wasn't going to happen immediately. Three years after that wonderful rush, it was hard for people to understand why we weren't in the cup final again or why we weren't in the top six. I was starting to think maybe it was time for a change. Saturday, May the 9th. 1987. A bright sunny afternoon to round off the league season and an occasion to remind Watford of what could have been. Their opponents were Tottenham Hotspur, who had one eye on the FA Cup final against Coventry City the following Saturday. The Hornets won the game 1-0 and in the second half gave a debut to a young midfielder called Chris Pullen. After the game, Taylor told the press, he came back at Mitchell Thomas and tackled him won the ball back and set off again. I am able to use that to say to players, that is what you used to do when you came into the team, but you've stopped doing it now. But it was Taylor's programme notes that hinted that the manager was in reflective mood. He wrote, I count myself proud that I can say I have spent ten years of my life in such a development. To be able to join a football club and state what you want to achieve in a decade both on and off the field, and then attain those achievements happens to only a handful of people. What will the next ten years bring? As they say, that's another question. All I know is that ten years have passed since I became manager, 
and I just want to take this opportunity of thanking everyone for the support and friendship I have been given. Whatever my future, Watford will always be a part of me for the remainder of my life. Whatever my future. It sounded like a resignation speech, a fond farewell to friends made over the past decade. Did he already know he would be leaving? After the game, as the players headed to the bar for a post-match drink, Taylor was back out on the pitch, presenting some prizes to a group of sponsors who had held a five-a-side tournament. Taylor was always generous with his time in such circumstances, and by the time he had finished, the players had gone. The directors had gone, as had Elton. He went to his office to collect some things and found that he was the last to leave. As he left, he locked up behind him. There could be a downside to running a football club from top to bottom. I was very low at that time, he says. I presented these prizes, but not one director stayed behind. Eddie and Muff Winwood had gone to a restaurant, and here I am down at the ground on my own. We had an end-of-season trip to China coming up, which I was very involved in. In 1983 every director came, but this time no one wanted to come. We had negotiations with sponsors coming up. I felt like I was being left to deal with everything. In a way, it was my own fault. I know when Muff joined, in around 1985, he was surprised how much say I had. Well, now I felt like I was being left to get on with it. Graham Taylor could not have stayed at Watford forever. He wanted to be the England manager and accepted that the leap from Vicarage Road to Lancaster Gate would be too big. It probably would have been difficult to do that, he says. The issue would have been the media. I don't think they would have accepted that. Bertie realised it might be time for me to go. He knew I'd have to show I could do it at a big club. Taylor had been linked with other clubs in the past. In 1980 there was interest from North America. One club, said by the Watford Observer to be Fort Lauderdale, offered him the chance to quadruple his salary to £100,000 a year, but he said he couldn't face leaving his dogs behind. Not long after that, he travelled to Canada to meet representatives of Vancouver Whitecaps. Tony Waiters, the former Blackpool and England player, had been the team manager there and was being moved upstairs. I pretty much knew I wasn't going to go there, says Taylor, and I told Tony that, but he was insistent that I go over and meet him. They said I could bring Rita over. I spoke to Elton and told him I'd been approached, but that I didn't want to leave. Elton said to Taylor, Well, tell them you're prepared to meet them if they fly you over first class. Take a little break with Rita. Vancouver said yes to that, so we went over and we were wined and dined and I got on well with Tony, but he knew before I went over that I wasn't interested in joining. Crystal Palace were rumoured to be interested in Taylor after Terry Venables left in 1980, and the following year it was widely reported that the Watford manager had been second on Manchester United's shortlist, although they eventually gave the job to Ron Atkinson. Having signed a five-year contract extension at Watford in 1980, Taylor was committed to Watford. I'd gone nine games without a win, and Elton's response was to offer me a new contract, he says. You get the sack for that now. I never had to worry about my job, never had to worry about my directors. Although I had these long contracts, we had a verbal agreement that halfway through we'd look at it. I wasn't too certain about five years. In summer 1985, Taylor had signed for another five years, and a year later 
was in the frame to replace Don Howe at Arsenal, but the offer never materialised and the job went to George Graham. Arsenal were interested and because of Bertie's connections there and the secretary Ken Fryer, it had been talked about, says Taylor, but it didn't happen and I've never really known why that didn't follow through. After the cup semi-final at Villa Park, the Watford manager spoke to Dick Taylor, who had played for Scunthorpe United when Graham Taylor's father had been the football correspondent for the local paper. Dick Taylor had gone on to manage Aston Villa in the 1960s and had followed his namesake's career closely after they became friends. Dick always said he imagined me following in his footsteps, says Taylor. Villa was a club in disarray. Just six years earlier they had won the European Cup, but everything was crumbling now, even the stadium. In March, an exhausted Watford team travelled to Villa Park for a league match. A week earlier they had been in Trinidad to play a friendly, and in between they had played Arsenal at Vicarage Road. Watford were held 1-1 by Villa. Graham was livid, says Steve Sims. We were dead on our feet after all the travelling and the matches we played, but he was still annoyed because Villa had been absolutely hopeless. At the end of the season, Villa were relegated to the second division, and their manager, Billy McNeil, was sacked. Dick Taylor rang Graham Taylor and told him the job was his if he wanted it. Tuesday, May the 12th. Watford were due to play a friendly against the Scottish side, Heart of Midlothian. It was a testimonial match for Steve Sherwood, who had been at the club for ten years. The afternoon of the Hearts match, the board met in the little office block between the main stand and the rookery that overlooked the pitch. There were some problems to deal with. The money's not been paid for the Rouse stand, says Taylor. Someone said, Bloody hell, Elton, if you can't find the money, tell us, we can sort it out, but we all need to know. If you're having problems, tell us, and we'll have to talk to the bank or renegotiate or something. When the meeting broke up, Taylor and John Reed had a quiet word in a small room down the corridor. Taylor told Reed, who was a director of the football club but also Elton's manager, that he'd had an approach from Aston Villa. John Reed told Taylor, We wouldn't stop you. That was all Taylor needed to hear. He headed down towards the dressing room because the players were starting to arrive for the match. Reed had a quick word with Elton, and the board meeting continued. As Eddie Plumley says, Elton sat down and said to us, I've got something to say. Then he told us Graham was leaving, that they'd had an approach from Aston Villa. You could have heard a pin drop. There was a sense of disbelief, says Plumley. Graham and Elton had always been very close. I mean, they had their moments and it blew hot and cold, but the only time I really saw either of them lose it was in fun. They'd been playing draughts and the board would glow flying. I think it may well have suited John Reed for the partnership to break up because Elton was trying to get out. No one stepped in and said anything, says Taylor. No one got Elton and I together and said, come on, is this what either of you want? I think we'd both have said that it wasn't what we wanted. But how we'd have put it all right, I don't know. That night Watford beat Hearts 4-3. Sherwood was substituted by the 16-year-old David James, and was given a warm send-off. John Barnes, too, said farewell to the Watford crowd. No one knew that Graham Taylor, who sat down on the bench, with his emotions swirling, was also on his way. The following morning, John Ward, Taylor's assistant, was in hospital in Bushy, feeling groggy. The old battle scars from his days as a centre-forward 
had been causing him trouble. He'd broken his nose several times during his career, and it was making it hard to breathe. The septum needed resetting. He had the operation and went home, but something had gone wrong, and a blood vessel had burst, causing him to hemorrhage. Ward had to go back into hospital for another operation and a blood transfusion. Now he was in bed with two black eyes, a mask to help him breathe and tubes everywhere, feeling awful. Graham Taylor popped his head round the door, bearing more than a bag of grapes. As he walked into the room, he did an impression of a TV news reporter. The big news is that John Ward gets up from his sickbed and agrees to take over as Watford manager after Graham Taylor joins Aston Villa. Say that again, said Ward, not sure if he was dreaming. I'm going to Aston Villa, John. Sometimes we're guilty of not remembering how good things were, says Taylor. But 1977 to 1987 was the happiest ten years of my life. And not only because everything went so miraculously well. My family life was fantastic. I was known in the town. My children grew up there. I loved living in the area. And we were very happy. I knew Elton was trying to sell the club. And at the end of the season, I suppose, I was looking for a little bit of reassurance. When I said I was looking to leave, I needed someone to say, Hold on a minute. Is this what you want? It is a big shame in one respect, but we needed someone, Bertie or one of the directors, to get Elton and I together. I felt my departure, and I have some responsibility for this, wasn't handled as well as it could have been. Once I'd decided I was going to Villa, people wondered if I was testing the water. Well, maybe I was testing the water, and I was right in what I had suspected. Even by Friday, only a select few people knew Taylor was leaving. There was not even a whisper in the Watford Observer, although astute readers would have sensed there was more than an end-of-term feeling to the manager's quotes. Behind the scenes, Bertie Mee, Muir Stratford and Jeff Smith were immediately of the opinion that Watford should promote from within and offer the job to John Ward or Steve Harrison, or perhaps make them joint managers. Continuity was what the club needed now. But, just like in 1977, Elton John had other ideas. End of chapter 24 Next time, call me Harry. Meet the new boss. Very different to the old boss. <laughs>